This afternoon we will be considering Baptist Catechism number 41. It asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? The answer given is this. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Brothers and sisters, we should work to memorize this question and answer this week. Uh, Young people, we should work to memorize this question and answer uh, this week. It may be that it only sticks in your mind for a short time. I'm not particularly good at memorization, I'll admit it. Uh, But if we work on memorizing this question and answer, the, the, the thoughts, the concepts will stick with us for a very long time. So I would encourage you to do it. I'll read now from 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. Hear now the word of God. But someone will ask, Paul says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So here Paul is addressing the resurrection and the question of how this, how this, how this works and what kind of body people will have in the resurrection. I continue to quote now. You foolish person, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So you can see that Paul is using an illustration of putting a seed into the ground. That seed goes into the ground, but it sprouts up as something else. The two things are related, but they're not identical. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of for, for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another, Paul says. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for a star differs from star in glory. And here is what Paul says. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is to say what is put into the earth, is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven." Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he bless the explanation of it uh, this afternoon. Have Have you ever wondered what the tree of life signified for Adam in the Garden of Eden? I know that you have because we've addressed this question recently in the preaching through the book of Exodus and before that the book of Genesis. Have you ever wondered what the tree of life signified for Adam in the Garden of Eden? 
We know what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil signified. That forbidden tree signified rebellion against God and its consequences. God commanded Adam not to eat of that tree and warned that in the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would mean that there was rebellion in Adam's heart and it would lead to death, physical death, and even more significantly, eternal death, that is to say, eternal separation from God. Conversely, eating from the tree of life would mean that Adam passed the time of testing and would enter into life, just as the name implies. But you ask, wasn't Adam already alive there in the Garden of Eden? And indeed he was already alive. And not only was he alive, he was alive in paradise. He stood in right relation to God. What more could he ask for might be our question. Clearly then, the presence of the tree of life in the garden communicated that God had more for Adam. The one tree was a threat to him, but the tree of life held out the promise of life. Uh, This must mean that there was a higher form of life for Adam, life eternal. If Adam would have passed the test, he would have been transferred from life in Eden, which was a wonderful thing, to life in glory, life eternal, consummate life in the presence of God. As you know, Adam failed. He ate of the forbidden tree and entered immediately into the state of death, which is eternal separation from and enmity with God. Never did he eat of the tree of life. He was barred from that tree God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, Genesis 3.24 says. So what was it that Adam forfeited? What was it that he failed to obtain? In other words, what kind of life was it that was offered him through the tree of obedience? If the only scripture we had was Genesis chapters 1-3, through then I suppose we could only speculate. But the rest of scripture actually answers this question with great clarity. The tree of life held out to Adam the offer of life eternal, consummate life, spiritual life, or to put it another way, life in glory. It held out to Adam the offer of life in glory. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In sin, Adam and all who are born from him are born in sin. And thus they fall short of this state of glory. So brothers and sisters, if you wish to know the kind of life and the kind of body that Adam would have been given had he passed the test by abstaining from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and eating from the tree of life, then Consider Christ in His resurrection. Have you ever thought of this before? What what would have happened to Adam? There he was in the Garden of Eden in paradise. He was being tested. There There were two trees, knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. What would have happened to Adam if he had passed the test and been permitted to eat of the tree of life? How would he have been changed? What kind of life would he he entered into? What What would that have looked like? Here's the way of answering it. Look to Jesus Christ after His resurrection. Do you remember He walked with His disciples on earth for 40 days? He walked amongst them bodily. This was the same Jesus that went into the grave, but there was a kind of difference. This was Jesus glorified 
And it was that Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father. He entered into glory. This is what would have happened to Adam had he passed the test, but he failed. He failed. He entered into a state of death, of sin, and of misery. Christ, though, passed the test. Christ lived for sinners. He died for sinners. On the third day, He rose from the grave bottle. He was raised in glory. You may see 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and following in 1 Peter 1, 21. He walked on earth for 40 days, proving Himself to be alive. Remember, He ate before His disciples, proving that He was really alive in the flesh. He said to Thomas, doubting Thomas, touch my hands and my feet. He was showing that He was raised in glory. He had a spiritual body That is to say, a real body of flesh, but one that was glorified by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the same body He has now. He ascended to the Father. That is to say, He ascended into glory. Christ, the second Adam, obeyed God. He earned the right to eat of the tree of life, if you will. And He did enter into the glory of the Father. His earthly body went into the grave, but from there it was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. To use Paul's metaphor, the body of Christ was like a seed. Sown perishable, but raised imperishable. It was sown in dishonor, it was raised in glory. Christ the God-man died according to the flesh, but He was raised in the flesh, never to die again. He completed the race that the first Adam failed to complete. He did it for Himself and for others. But listen carefully to this. When Christ entered into glory, He entered as a forerunner. He entered into glory so that He might in due time bring others into glory also. As Paul says elsewhere, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power and power. In the previous question, we learned that when a believer dies, their body goes into the grave and their souls immediately pass into the presence of God. Indeed, that will be a great blessing for us to, pla- to pass into the presence of God. I do not wish to diminish that in the least bit. But this week we learned that this is not the end for the believer. This is not the final state for the believer, to be separated body from soul and to dwell in the presence of God only in a soulish way. Uh, The believer will not remain in that incomplete, disembodied, soulish state forever. Instead, at the resurrection, believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body, in full enjoyment of God to all eternity. I want you to notice a few things about our catechism, the answer that is given to the question, what will happen to believers at the resurrection? One, notice that we are talking about what will happen at at the resurrection. What is this? What is the resurrection? Uh, When will this happen? Well, this is something that will happen in the future, on the last day, when Christ returns. He will do many things on that day, one of them being to raise the bodies of all who have died. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is what will happen on the last day when Christ returns from heaven. He ascended to heaven, from there He'll return. When He does, and He will do so openly, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, 
Paul says, we who are alive, that is, those who are present still on earth and have not died, uh, who are left will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This catechism question and answer is telling us about what will happen on the last day when Christ returns. This will happen at the resurrection. Two, our catechism is specifically addressing what will happen to believers on the last day. At the resurrection, believers, our catechism says. This is about believers and not those who remain in unbelief. Those outside of Christ will be the focus of our attention in the following question. Three, notice that the language of glory is used here. Christ suffered in the flesh to bring many sons to glory, to quote Hebrews 2.10. To enter into glory is to enter into the blessed presence of God where we will enjoy Him forever and ever. So then, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory. Believers being raised up and brought into that glorified state is what our catechism teaches. For notice the connection between the resurrection and the, last, and the day of judgment. Notice the connection between the resurrection and the day of judgment. Again, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. According to dispensational premillennialists, there will be a long gap of time between the resurrection day and the judgment day. Some of you are familiar with that system. But the scriptures nowhere teach this. In fact, the scriptures teach that on the last day, Christ will return to raise the dead, to judge, and to usher in the new heavens and earth. I've said it this way before, the last day will be a very busy day. There will be many things that happen on the last day, including the resurrection, but this will be one event with many components and not many isolated events spread over a long period of time. This is what Paul so clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and following. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Do you see it? Uh, The dispensationalists see gaps in this text and they insert even a thousand years here, uh, but no such gap exists. In fact, the last day will be a very full day when Christ returns to raise the dead, to judge, and to make all things new. Five, those in Christ shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Believers will be acknowledged. Well, what will they be acknowledged to be? They will be acknowledged to be children of God. For, remember, they were adopted in Christ Jesus. Do not forget the catechism question and answer about adoption. We have been adopted. It's one of the benefits we receive now, right? When we place our faith in Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God Now, well, on the last day when Christ returns, believers are going to be raised in glory and openly acknowledged to be sons and daughters of God. We are also told that believers will be acquitted. This is a legal term. They will be acquitted for they were, they have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, I will say to you, do not forget Baptist Catechism's questions, I believe it is 35 and 36, that teach us about the benefits that come to believers now in Christ Jesus. Uh, We are justified now, but on the last day, those in Christ will be openly acquitted, shown to be justified in an open way. This is one of the things that will happen on the last day. 
At the final judgment, those not in Christ will be judged. But at the final judgment, those in Christ will be openly acknowledged to be sons and daughters of God and openly acquitted based upon what Christ has done for them. Six, believers will be made perfectly blessed at the resurrection. We will be blessed at the moment of death when our souls are brought into the presence of God. But at the resurrection, we will be perfectly blessed, the catechism says. This is because seven... In that moment, we will be glorified both in soul and body as whole persons. As I explained last week, those with faith in Christ will be blessed in soul when they die, but their bodies will go into the grave. There they will wait. For this time, we will be blessed but incomplete. At the resurrection, though, we will be made whole persons again. Then we will be made perfectly blessed both in body and soul And then eight, notice what it is that will make us perfectly blessed or happy. To be blessed is to be happy. To be blessed is to be thoroughly satisfied. What will it be that will make us perfectly blessed? It will be the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. God is the blessing, brothers and sisters. His presence is what makes heaven heavenly, you see. Are we blessed now in Christ Jesus? Yes, we are. And why are we blessed? Because we have been reconciled to the Father and we have communion with Him. He is the source of every blessing now. But on the last day, believers will be made perfectly blessed because we will be ushered into His presence immediately. Uh, God is the thing that will make heaven heaven. I've said this to you before, and here our catechism beautifully draws that out. We will be perfectly blessed in body and soul in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. King David knew this. Christ knew this, of course. He he knows this now. Um, And we will be with him someday when he returns. But would you listen to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11? This is David uh, speaking under the Old Covenant. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is marvelous. This psalm here, Psalm 16 is fulfilled ultimately in Christ, but it was true of David too. He had this confidence that he would be perfectly blessed both in body and soul because of the work that the Messiah would do, and, and, and the Messiah would do. And he, and he knew also that pleasures forevermore are found at the right hand of God. God is the source of our ever, every blessing. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Now, brothers and sisters, these are marvelous truths that we need to put in our minds and believe in our hearts. I hope that you do find this handout useful. Uh, Parents, I especially hope that you find this handout useful. Uh, The introductory remarks to the sermon I just preached are printed out here in manuscript form. But then the body of the sermon where the catechism is explained is in bullet point form. 
Uh, perhaps you can even use the breakdown of this catechism, the way I've broken it up into pieces to help your children and even you yourselves to memorize this catechism. Uh, you will notice on the back page there are discussion questions based upon this, ba- this catechism question for use in the home and in small groups. Perhaps gospel community groups could also use these questions along with the ones about the morning sermon. And then there's a little place for writing down the catechism once it is memorized and even for writing down the scripture text once it is memorized, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. My hope is that you'll take these each Sunday and that you'll keep them somewhere. Uh, as a reminder of what it is that you've been taught, as a reminder of what you've learned. Uh, The way this will work is that um, this whole catechism will be taught in 90 lessons over the course of two years. And so you can see how this will build and build and build. Uh, You could probably see how this might be, how this will be useful in determining when our children are ready for baptism. How this would be useful in discipling brand new believers. Yes? Uh, and in training further uh, the people of God in the Christian faith. Can you see how this will be useful? Uh, To clarify, it is not my view that children need to have every question and answer memorized in order to be baptized, nor would that be true of a a new believer. Um, But people do need to know the Christian faith before they are baptized, wouldn't you agree? They need to make a credible profession of faith. And so this will be very useful for us in helping to discern when there is a credible profession of faith. Faith is trust, yes, but it is also a body of doctrine, and that is what we're teaching, Lord willing, faithfully on the Lord's Day afternoon here at Emmaus.